Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. My name is Judd Littleton, and I'm a partner in the litigation group and co-head of the firm's appellate practice. I'm here with Julia Malkina, also a partner in our litigation group. Today, we are continuing our series of podcast supplements to SNC's Supreme Court Business Review, our summary of the decisions from this past term that are most relevant to businesses. You can find the Supreme Court Business Review, as well as all of our podcast episodes once they are released, on SNC's website at www.silprom.com. In this episode, we are joined by Nikki Friedlander and Camille Shields to discuss two of the Supreme Court's decisions from last term in the criminal defense and investigation space. First, we will discuss Kelly versus United States, in which petitioners challenged the criminal convictions stemming out of the so-called Bridgegate scandal. And second, we will discuss Lou v. SEC, which considered the scope of the SEC's disgorgement authority in civil enforcement actions in federal court. Nikki and Camille, both veterans of U.S. attorneys' offices and members of SNC's Criminal Defense and Investigations Group, will share their insights on the implications of these cases for businesses and practitioners. So let's start with the court's decision in Kelly v. United States. Some of our listeners may already be familiar with the underlying facts of what has become known as Bridgegate. In 2013, then New Jersey Governor Chris Christie was trying to gather bipartisan support for his reelection campaign. As part of that effort, his deputy chief of staff, Bridget Kelly, was tasked with rounding up support from local officials, including Democratic mayors. That summer, Kelly learned that the mayor of Fort Lee, New Jersey, a city that serves as an entry point to New York City via the George Washington Bridge, would not back Governor Christie's reelection campaign. As political retribution, Kelly and two high-ranking officials of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey conspired to alter the traffic patterns on the George Washington Bridge to, as an infamous email from Kelly put it, cause some traffic problems in Fort Lee. Specifically, for decades, three of the 12 lanes on the George Washington Bridge have been reserved for traffic coming out of Fort Lee. Kelly and the two Port Authority officials realigned two of those lanes, leaving only a single lane for traffic from Fort Lee. As cover for the scheme, the defendants orchestrated a bogus traffic study that required hiring engineers. The Port Authority also paid for an extra on-call toll collector to relieve the one remaining toll collector should that individual have needed a break. The resulting traffic was horrendous, with school buses sitting in traffic for hours, an ambulance struggling to reach a heart attack victim, and police delayed in responding to a missing child report. The traffic alignment continued for three days. Nikki, what was the fallout from the Bridgegate political retribution scheme? The scheme quickly caught the attention of federal prosecutors who brought charges and obtained convictions on two federal fraud statutes, wire fraud and fraud on a federally funded entity, specifically the Port Authority. But in Kelly, the Supreme Court unanimously overturned those convictions. Both of the federal fraud statutes criminalize fraud aimed at depriving victims of money or property. In support of the convictions, the government argued that the misconduct deprived the Port Authority of both property and money. The Supreme Court rejected that argument as an unduly expansive interpretation of the federal fraud statutes. Camille, can we take the government's argument in pieces, starting with the property argument? 
Sure. The government's theory was that the fraud deprived the Port Authority of property in the form of the two realigned lanes. But differently, the co-conspirators commandeered the two lanes and deprived the Port Authority of its lawful authority to use or control these lanes. The Supreme Court rejected this argument. As Justice Kagan's opinion reasoned, the defendants had not taken or commandeered the traffic lanes because the defendants did not walk away with those lanes. Instead, the defendants' actions were a regulatory decision about allocation, exclusion, and control. And what about the government's money argument? The government argued that the Port Authority was defrauded of money as a consequence of the scheme, specifically having to pay engineers for the sham traffic study and the additional on-call toll collector. Although the Supreme Court agreed that labor costs could satisfy the property or money requirements of the fraud statutes, labor costs would have to be the object of the fraud. The labor of the Port Authority employees, however, reflected implementation costs that were an incidental, even if foreseen, byproduct of the Bridgegate scheme. Thank you, Nikki and Camille. In some sense, the decision in Kelly seems rather straightforward. Sensational facts, but ultimately just a holding that the government didn't prove the elements of either of the two federal property fraud statutes on those facts. Nikki, what, if any, broader impact do you expect Kelly will have? There are two ways to read Kelly, one in which Kelly is limited to public corruption cases and a broader reading in which Kelly applies to the federal fraud statutes more generally. Parts of the decision would seem to support an interpretation of Kelly as limited to cases of public corruption. Obviously, the facts of the case related to political conduct The court also stated that one of its concerns was that the federal government would use criminal law to, quote, enforce its view of integrity in broad swaths of state and local policymaking. This concern about the federal government usurping state and local politics is not new. It falls in line with a trend we saw as recently as the 2016 decision in McConnell versus United States, which left recourse for corruption by state and local officials largely in the hands of state law enforcement and of the electorate. Viewed through this lens, the unanimity of the Supreme Court is not surprising. Kelly wouldn't seem to have much of an impact beyond public corruption cases. And what about if Kelly is understood as extending beyond public corruption cases to the general fraud statutes? Well, under that reading of Kelly, a broader reading, court requires a tight nexus between an alleged fraud and money or property for all the property fraud statutes. To understand that, we need to take a step back and recall the Supreme Court's 2009 decision in the Enron case, Skilling v. United States. There, the court interpreted the Honest Services Fraud Statute, a statute enacted to uncover frauds involving intangible rights. The court read the statute narrowly, limiting the reach of the Honest Services Fraud Statute to only kickback and bribery. This left other forms of fraud involving intangible rights beyond the reach of federal prosecutors. The federal government could not use fraud statutes to prosecute frauds that did not involve kickbacks, bribery, money, or property. In response, federal prosecutors expanded their understanding of property as a means of enlarging the reach of the fraud statutes. By requiring a tighter connection between the fraud and tangible money or property, Kelly again narrows the scope of conduct falling within the reach of the federal fraud statutes. I can see lower courts adopting either of those interpretations, reading Kelly narrowly to apply to only public corruption cases, or reading it more broadly to apply to all cases brought under the federal property fraud statute. What should we look out for as the impact of Kelly plays out? 
Wire and mail fraud tend to be among the most flexible and commonly used criminal federal statutes by prosecutors. We saw this relatively recently in United States versus Blachek, where the Second Circuit upheld the use of the wire fraud statute to prosecute insider trading instead of the usual method of prosecuting insider trading, which is SEC Rule 10b-5 promulgated under the Securities and Exchange Act. Given these various uses of the wire fraud statute, we can and have seen many defendants raise Kelly issues. One area of development has been in college admissions and college sports cases. In June 2020, the court in one of the widely publicized college admissions scandals, known as the Varsity Blues cases, determined that a college admission slot constituted property for purposes of the mail and wire fraud statutes. In reaching this determination, the court analogized an admission slot to an unissued college degree. As determined by the Sixth Circuit in a 1997 decision, unissued college degrees are property for purposes of mail fraud. The Varsity Blues Court reasoned that, like an unissued college degree, an admission slot carries advantages, rights, and privileges, is limited and coveted, and brings value to a university or college. So the district court in the Varsity Blues cases determined that under Kelly, a college admission slot constitutes property for purposes of the mail and wire fraud statute. That decision, of course, is subject to appellate review. Are there any appellate decisions in the pipeline that we should keep an eye on? Yes. Currently pending before the Second Circuit is a case captioned United States versus Gatto. It's an appeal for mail and wire fraud convictions related to an NCAA basketball corruption probe where college basketball recruits were allegedly bribed with sports scholarships into signing with universities sponsored by a particular athletic wear company. In supplemental briefing submitted in May 2020 by Order of the Second Circuit, the defendants and the government focused on the Kelly issue, specifically addressing whether a college's right to control its scholarships constitutes property. A decision is pending in that case. You just mentioned a theory of property that focuses on the right to control an asset. This right to control theory was raised but not addressed by the Supreme Court and Kelly. It seems like that issue will continue percolating in the lower courts. We've already seen this right to control issue come up. In August 2020, Hawk Bank, a Turkish state-owned bank, moved to dismiss the indictment against it brought in the Southern District of New York. Hawk Bank made various arguments, including an argument that a bank fraud charge failed to allege an intent to expose a U.S. bank to actual or potential losses. Hall Bank dropped a footnote acknowledging that the Second Circuit had recognized this right to control theory as a form of intangible property falling within the scope of the mail, wire, and frank fraud statutes. This footnote preserved the bank's argument that the right to control theory simply cannot be reconciled with Kelly. As illustrated in all of the Kelly arguments that we've seen thus far, college admission slots, sports scholarships, and this right to control assets, the key issue will be how closely coupled the purpose of the fraud must be to some form of tangible property or money. It'll be interesting to see how all this plays out. Thanks very much, Camille. So let's turn now to the civil side of things and talk a little bit about Lou versus SEC, in which the Supreme Court considered the SEC's statutory authority to seek certain remedies and civil enforcement actions for securities fraud. Julia, do you want to talk a little bit about what that case was about? Certainly. Thanks, Judd. Lou considered whether the SEC may seek disgorgement and civil enforcement action in federal court under the SEC's statutory authorization to obtain, quote, any equitable relief 
necessary for the benefit of investors. For decades, courts have allowed the SEC to obtain disgorgement in civil enforcement actions. And over time, the SEC has come to rely heavily on disgorgement as part of its civil enforcement toolbox. For example, in fiscal year 2019, the SEC obtained more than $3.2 billion in disgorgement, nearly tripled the $1.1 billion in penalties that the SEC obtained. In lieu, the Supreme Court held that disgorgement, when properly limited, is a form of equitable relief authorized by the statute. Lou thus preserved the SEC's ability to seek disgorgement in civil enforcement actions, but imposed potentially significant limits on the scope of the SEC's disgorgement authority. Thanks, Julia. So, Nikki, if the SEC has been seeking disgorgement for decades, how did it come about that the Supreme Court is just now deciding whether the SEC was really allowed to do that in the first place? That's a good question, Ted. The seeds of Lou were planted by a 2017 Supreme Court case, Kokesh v. SEC, which held that SEC disgorgement had all the hallmarks of a penalty for purposes of the five-year statute of limitations that applies to actions seeking a civil penalty. Kokesh thus called into question whether disgorgement also falls outside of the SEC's statutory authorization to obtain equitable relief, which historically excluded punitive sanctions. Three years after Kokesh, that very question came before the court in Lou. The petitioners in Lou were a married couple who solicited tens of millions of dollars from foreign investors under an immigration program allowing foreign investors to apply for permanent residence in the U.S. based on investments in approved commercial enterprises. Rather than invest the money in the construction costs of a cancer treatment center as they'd promised, however, the SEC alleged that the couple misappropriated millions of dollars for themselves. In the SEC's resulting action in federal court, the district court ordered nearly $27 million in disgorgement, as well as imposing an additional multi-million dollar penalty and an injunction against participating in the immigration program. The Ninth Circuit affirmed, and the Supreme Court granted cert to resolve whether the reasoning of Kokesh prohibited the awarding of disgorgement awards altogether as a form of equitable relief. Mail, could you walk us through the Supreme Court's reasoning in holding that disgorgement is a form of equitable relief that the SEC may seek in civil enforcement action? Sure. Because Congress did not specifically define what qualifies as equitable relief under the relevant statute, the Supreme Court looked to what types of relief were historically available at equity. Based on that survey of historical authority, the Supreme Court concluded that a court's equitable powers have long included the ability to strip wrongdoers of ill-gotten gains, that is, to order disgorgement. However, the court noted that courts had traditionally imposed limits on the scope of disgorgement in order to avoid transforming that equitable remedy into a punitive sanction, and rejected the government's argument that the SEC's broader interpretation of this disgorgement had been implicitly ratified by Congress. Thus, while the court upheld the SEC's ability to seek disgorgement, it imposed potentially significant limits on its use. So it sounds like a mixed result for both sides. What are the limits that the court imposed on the SEC's disgorgement remedy? Notably, because the parties in lieu had focused their briefing on the question of whether the SEC was even authorized to seek disgorgement, the court vacated the appellate court's decision and remanded for the lower courts to determine the appropriate disgorgement award here. To assist the lower courts in this exercise, the Supreme Court outlined three principles to guide the appropriateness of SEC disgorgement awards, but the exact contours of those limits remain subject to interpretation. 
So what are the three principles that the court provided? First, the court highlighted that the relevant statute restricted the SEC's ability to obtain equitable relief to that which may, quote, be appropriate or necessary for the benefit of investors, end quote, which should generally require that the SEC return defendants' gains to harmed investors. The court specifically rejected the SEC's argument that the mere act of bringing in action benefits the public at large and satisfies the, quote, benefit of investors, end quote, requirement, but left open whether the SEC's practice of depositing disgorgement funds into the U.S. Treasury could be permissible in certain circumstances. Second, the court called into question the SEC's ability to seek disgorgement on a collective liability or joining several basis, absent evidence of concerted wrongdoing. The court noted that imposing collective liability for disgorgement could turn what should be an equitable remedy into a punitive one. Thus, disgorgement is limited to the specific defendant's profits or ill-gotten gains rather than all profits from an alleged enterprise. Third and finally, the court held that courts must deduct legitimate expenses or expenses with, quote, value independent of fueling a fraudulent scheme, end quote, from disgorged profits. For example, the court noted that some of the expenses from the petitioner scheme were in fact used for cancer treatment equipment, but left the determination of which expenses to deduct to the lower courts. What was the vote breakdown for Lou? Well, eight of the justices voted to uphold SEC disgorgement. Justice Thomas dissented. Justice Thomas concluded that disgorgement was not authorized under the relevant statute and noted that the court decision left open many questions regarding the scope of the disgorgement remedy, such as whether the limits the court placed on disgorgement would also apply when the SEC seeks disgorgement in administrative proceedings. Thanks, Camille. It strikes me that even though the court upheld the SEC's disgorgement authority generally, these principles may impose some significant restraints on the SEC. Nikki, what are the implications for the SEC in light of Lou? You're right that this decision may impose significant constraints on the SEC. And that's true, even though the court left it to the lower courts to determine how to interpret the appropriateness of disgorgement awards in light of the three principles that the court articulated. As Julia mentioned, the SEC has relied heavily on disgorgement as part of its civil enforcement framework. The SEC has also historically not returned all disgorged funds to investors. In fiscal year 2019, just for an example, the SEC returned only a little more than a third of the more than $3 billion in disgorged funds that it collected to investors. While the court left the door open for the SEC to continue to deposit disgorged funds into the Treasury, if lower courts ultimately require funds to be returned to investors for disgorgement to be properly cabined, the SEC's ability to retain large awards may be limited. In the FCPA, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act context, for example, it may prove particularly difficult to identify the relevant harmed parties, and the potential victims may be countries ruled by government officials who were involved in the corruption itself. So it sounds like you think Lou is imposing potentially significant constraints on the SEC's enforcement. Absolutely. And additionally, the Supreme Court left unresolved how courts should determine which legitimate expenses must be deducted from a disgorgement award. While, as Camille noted, the court implied that some of the defendant's expenses in lieu may have been legitimate, that determination was ultimately left to the lower courts. Among other things, this means the courts will need to determine which party bears the burden of proof to demonstrate that business expenses are legitimate and therefore must be excluded from a disgorgement award. 
the court will also need to determine what types of business expenses are excludable. For example, do you exclude the costs of performing under a contract that was fraudulently obtained? Finally, outside of the SEC context, Lou may impact the ability of other federal agencies, such as the FTC, the CFTC, and the CFPB, to seek disgorgement-style remedies without explicit statutory authorization. For example, the Supreme Court granted cert at the end of this term in FTC v. Credit Bureau Center, in which the FTC seeks to reverse a Seventh Circuit decision holding that restitution is not authorized under a similar but potentially narrower statute to the one that the court considered in lieu. We should have that decision by June 2021, so you'll have to tune in again next year. Thanks very much, Nikki and Camille. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to our Supreme Court Business Review podcast series. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.solcrom.com. Thank you.